Good morning, everybody. Please take your Bibles and turn with me to the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes. And uh, welcome to Wyoming Valley Church. We're really glad that you're here. Thanks for joining us either online or for those of you that are here at our building. This is fun getting back together. Uh, we have missed you and uh, we're glad to be able to fellowship together this, uh, this morning. Um, I was telling Pastor Todd this morning about my title and uh, we kind of added a piece of equipment this week so that the PowerPoint could be right here by me. And so you could see the slide as well. Living a life that matters from the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes was written by one of David's sons, King Solomon. Passage that Pastor Todd just read actually talked about Solomon and all of his splendor, all of his glory. He was a guy, we'll talk about this, that uh, was known for his wisdom. God actually gave him a fulfilled promise and he asked for wisdom and yet at the end of his life he walked away from God and Ecclesiastes was written in that vein and I know that the phrase that a life that matters is certainly a big deal today and I think and it wasn't even my intent although probably psychologically there was something there and I'll, I'll, I'll admit that as well but the Bible talks about that about a life that matters for eternity certainly that all of us uh, were created in the image of God. Jesus Christ came to this earth to die for all of us, and life definitely has, has incredible value. But I'm talking about a life that matters for eternity. And so here in Ecclesiastes is where we're going to be this morning for our last uh, message in this, uh, uh, in this series. And we're going to talk a little bit about Solomon, and we'll get there in, in just a moment. Um, so... Let, let me just talk about that with you for a moment um, and, and give you a couple of illustrations. Uh, I have mentioned this before, and probably you can tell, if nothing else, by my size, that I was a, a basketball player in high school and then in college. And uh, uh, in high school, gr growing up, our high school basketball team, I think it was from uh, 10th grade, 11th grade, and 12th grade. And then even after that, I don't think I missed a day of playing basketball. It was incredibly important to me. It was something that God had given me size to be a basketball player, and it was just something that was important to me. And, and honestly, our senior year, um, we were really good, and we ended up going to the playoffs. We ended up going into the state tournament and so on, and that was really important to me. And I remember the trophies. I remember the awards. I remember the, all of that. And, and that, was, that was a big part of my life. And then I graduated and uh, went off to college and went to Clark Summit University, Baptist Bible College in those days, which is only a few miles from, uh, from my house. And I remember as a college student, I don't know if you've ever done this, but it was the first time that I ever went back to visit my high school. For whatever reason, we had a day off. And so I just didn't even tell anybody. But I drove up to my high school and parked the car in the visitor's parking spot and went in, and classes were in session. And I figured, you know, last year, uh, a year ago, I was the biggest kid in school, and it was, it, I was a basketball player. It was a big deal. And I walk in, and there was nobody there. And in our high school, Montrose, up where I grew up, um, and, and, and I walk in, and right in the, in the entryway of the building is the... Um, uh, or at least was, the trophy case. And I, yeah, forgive me for my vanity. We'll talk about that in just a minute. But I stopped and looked at the trophy case, and there were our trophies from one 
year ago. There were our trophies, front and center. In fact, the biggest picture, the biggest thing in the trophy case was a picture of our team. I mean, my picture was there in the, uh, in the trophy case at our school. And so I just decided to walk around. I walked down to the gym, and some phys ed class was going on, and the coaches weren't around, the teacher was there, and I walked down the hallway, and uh, classes were going on, and I'm just kind of reminiscing about, hey, a year ago I was pretty big stuff, right? And right then the bell rang. And I think, if I remember right, I was right by one of the science rooms. And all of a sudden, the door flew open, and out of the science room came, it probably, you know, we're ninth graders, you know how ninth graders are. And this little girl, compared to me, came out of the science room, and smack dab ran into me. And I think her head hit like my, my gut, and uh, she looked up, she stopped, she literally ran into me. She stopped and looked up at me and said, wow, looking up at this tall guy, and said, did you ever play basketball? And I was shattered. Don't you know, one year ago, we went to the state tournament. One year ago, my, 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 I didn't say this, but my picture is there. And here she asked if I ever played basketball. God has a way of keeping us humble right? Man has a way of making a big deal about man's accomplishments. I, I need to tell you another one this morning. I've talked to you, our church, about being a basketball player, and I've talked a little bit, but, but I'm also a writer ever since 10th grade. Uh, 10th grade English comp. The teacher encouraged me because she saw something there to be a writer, and uh, so I, I, lit, I just finished my 13th book. You're impressed, I can tell. And so I, I'm a writer. But I want to I wanna tell you about one of my books, okay, this morning. And uh, this is a book that a uh, picture came up on the PowerPoint as well, me holding a book last night. I had to go find one and dig it out to show you this uh, illustration this morning. And uh, I had been an editor. I had been a writer uh, as a career uh, for about 10 years at Regular Baptist Press, and during that time I had uh, actually written three little books, published three books, and so a friend of mine, Mike Calhoun, who was a vice president of Word of Life at the time, and I made a big pitch, and we got a contract to write a book from um, Thomas Nelson, which if you're a, uh, uh, if you're a believer, if you're into books at all, that's a big deal. They're one of the largest Christian publishing houses in the world. They have actually been bought out by HarperCollins. A secular company owns them. Uh, but that's, that's a big deal. And so um, we got the contract. And, and here's the book. I can tell you're impressed, right? Here's our book. And uh, the day it came to our house, we, uh, the author gets a couple copies and of, the, of the finished copy, right? And I'm, I'm showing you this book this morning. And I'm so excited, you know, and, uh, you know, it came and like I tackled my wife and, uh, you know, my kids shoved them out of the way. You know how it is. My, my book came and I'm looking at the book and thinking, this is the greatest thing ever. I mean, a book by, by Thomas Nelson. I mean, publishing house, this is, this is a great thing, right? <coughs> right then the phone rang, right then the phone rang. And it was my editor, my publisher at the publishing company. 
And he said to me, uh, Mel, did you get your copies of the book? And I'm like, uh, yes, I did. This is like the greatest thing ever. Thank you so much. I mean, I'm so excited. And the guy says to me, did you look at the book? And I said, you know, I tackled my wife. I threw my kids out of the way. I got a copy right here. Of course I'm looking at the book. And he said, did you look at the cover? And I, I'm not the guy that picked that cover. I'm not the guy behind the, you know, the bathroom, whatever that, whatever that guy is here, here on the book. And so I, so I said, yeah, I'm looking at it. He said, no, no, no. That's the uh, dust jacket. He said, did you look at the cover of the book? And I'm like, no. And so I take the book. And I opened it up, and this thing, the dust jacket, the dust sleeve, comes off. And let me show you the cover of the book. My name is spelled wrong on the book. Milwaukee. Yes, uh, Milwaukee. Uh, what, Mel, Mel, Milwaukee? And, and he's like, you know, I'm sorry. Um, I'm like, sure, of course, you'll take them all back and you'll publish them and you'll, re you'll reprint them. And, and this, my editor is like, who do you think you are? We're not going to reprint that or whatever. And God has a way of taking human achievement and making us humble, right? That's, that's not the end of the story about that particular book. I'm all excited about it. And a few years later, a friend of mine was visiting in Nashville, Tennessee, which is where Thomas Nelson headquarters is. And he sent me a picture. I've always, I always, you know, when I go visit Christian bookstores, Vanity, I know, I always go look, do they have my books, you know, and all of that. And this guy, a friend of mine, a guy that was one of my students, actually went to, uh, which ended up, you'll see by this picture, is a Goodwill store in Nashville, Tennessee. And you'll notice that they have several copies of the book in a good will store. No offense to anybody. I mean, Goodwill is great, but the publisher dumped them. <laughs> and so they were selling this book that I'm all excited about it, that my, my book. And it, several years had went by, but here, here it ends up being, you know, that they were for sale for you know, probably like 13 cents a piece, you know, and uh, who is this guy, Milwaukee, you know, and so God has a way of making us humble, keeping us humble, and that's probably a good thing. It's very easy to get caught up in man's glory, and Ecclesiastes is a book that basically is written to say, uh, Live a life that matters. And we're going to talk about two perspectives this morning. God's perspective that we'll get to at the end. And the world's perspective, which is what the majority of Ecclesiastes is about. Now, there's a phrase in Ecclesiastes that probably, if you've read it, and on social media, I encouraged our people to read all the way through its 12 chapters. And I don't know if you had a chance to do it this week, but if you did, and I don't know what version you have, but there's a phrase there that talks about man's accomplishments being a grasping after the wind. And actually, that phrase, I have New King James, 
That phrase, grasping after the wind, is mentioned nine times in the book. Um, nine times. Uh, 1 14, 1 17, 4 4, 4 6, 4 16, chapter 2, verse 11, chapter 2, verse 17, chapter 2, verse 26. You don't need to write, you can look them up too, Google it. And then chapter 6, verse 9, a grasping after the wind. That man's accomplishments is a grasping after the wind. And I thought about the, the, the futility of that and how, and how futile that is. So um, I, I, wanted, I wanted to illustrate that this morning. What, what's it like, a grasping after the wind? So I, I brought a fan. If you know me, you'll know. You ready for this one? You ready? I'll do anything for the fans. <laughs> Uh, Todd's the only one. Anyway, um, fan. A fan. Uh, chasing after the wind. And I've asked my grandson, Hadden, come up here. Would you please, bud? And the fan, the chasing after the wind is blowing my Bible. So, Hadden, come here. Yeah, so this is my, if you can see, this is my grandson, Hadden. Isn't he cute? Looks just like me. And uh, this, is my, this is my grandson, Hadden. So what we're going to do, Hadden, is grab some air from my fan, okay? So this is for you, and I want you to keep keep it. I brought a glass, a mason jar, whatever. It has a lid. Ladies, I don't know, or ladies, I don't know if you're into canning or whatever this is, but it has the, uh, the official name is a doohickey. It has this doohickey on here to seal it down. So, Hatton, I want you to take this and grab some wind for me. You got some in there? Wait, 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 better do it quick. You got some in there? Is there some in there? No. Yeah, there, there's some in there, yeah. Okay, ready, ready? Okay, there you go. Now keep it until the end, okay? You can go back and sit down. Just keep it until the end, okay? He's got some wind, right? We, we did that. I brought a fan. He got a mason jar. It has the, again, the official name is a doohickey that, that seals it down. And the Bible says over and over again, nine times in Ecclesiastes, that human... Achievement is a chasing after the wind. And I want to talk with you, forgive all of my illustrations to get us started, about a life that's either lived for God, for eternity, or a life that's lived for ourselves. There's an incredible contrast in the book of Ecclesiastes of a life that's meaningless. In fact, a different translation, I think that's the NIV, talks about how this, using that phrase from verse 14 of chapter 1, that everything, here's what Solomon said, and we'll talk about that in a minute at this stage of his life, that everything is utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Folks, that, that would break my heart. Right, and I put, I didn't know how to illustrate that. I put a picture of a casket. And, and honestly, I thought about my life, and I thought I gave you some dumb illustrations this morning about my life. And if we get to the end and we realize that our life hasn't mattered for eternity, how sad that is. The contrast that I grabbed a verse that's my life verse, actually, from 1 John 2.17, where it says there, the one who does the will of God abides forever. I have that verse on a plaque. I've had it by my, in my office, every single office I've had in my ministry because I want my life to count. I want my life to matter a whole lot more than my name on a trophy or a whole lot more than my name that's 
wrong on the cover of a book is I want my life for God to matter for eternity. So in Ecclesiastes, let me, all I'm going to do is read chapter 1 and then we'll, because chapter 1 kind of sets the stage for what we want to talk about today. And it's interesting, the passage that Pastor Todd read from Matthew uses Solomon as an illustration that, uh, that how God can take care of us and the emphasis in, in that passage in Matthew for eternity that's there. I think it's a very valuable lesson. But follow along with me, and then we're going to talk a little bit about those two different perspectives today. <coughs> Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Let me, I'm going to read it out loud, New King James. The words of the preacher. Let me stop there. The word Ecclesiastes is like the same word for ecclesiastical, like our day today. It, it literally means preacher. It means proclaimer. Okay, that's what this word is. So the words of the preacher... The son of David, who was King Solomon, king in Jerusalem. And then he says this, verse 2, Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity or all is meaningless. Verse 3 says, What profit has a man from all his labor in which he toils under the sun? One generation passes away and another generation comes, but the earth abides forever. The sun also rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it arose. The wind goes toward the south and turns around to the north. The wind whirls about continually and comes again on its circuit. All the rivers run into the sea, yet the sea is not full. To the place from which the rivers come, there they return again. All things are full of labor. Men cannot express it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear with or the ear filled with hearing. That which has been is what will be. That which is done is what will be done. And there's nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which it may be said, See, this is new. It has already been in ancient times before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of things that are to come by those who come after. I kind of gave you some illustrations about that. I, the preacher was king over Israel in Jerusalem. I set my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom concerning all that is done under heaven. This burdensome task God has given to the sons of men of man by which they may be exercised. I have seen all the works that are done under the sun, and indeed all is vanity and grasping for the wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, And what is lacking cannot be numbered. I communed with my heart, saying, Lord, I've attained greatness and have gained more wisdom than all who were before me in Jerusalem. My heart heart has understood great wisdom and knowledge, and I set my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also, that pursuit, is also a grasping for the wind. For in much wisdom is much grief, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. A look at life from a perspective of someone that made a choice to walk away from God, we'll talk about that in a minute. Let me pray, and then we're going to look at the two different perspectives uh, that Ecclesiastes brings for us in the life of Solomon. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for your word. And as we turn the corner and uh, do our Bible study this morning, Father, I pray that your word would ring 
true in our hearts and our lives. It is true. It is relevant. And help us to see that. God, I pray that my heart, that all of our hearts listening, watching online and all here, that our hearts would be in tune to what you have for us. Father, help us to be open. And, and, and God, if our lives have been filled with human achievement and living for ourselves, Father, forgive us for that. And help us to see that what matters is the life that's given for eternity. And Father, I pray that you'd help us to see that this morning for your glory, uh, for our benefit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, as I mentioned, and Pastor Todd opened the door for this last week in our study, talking about truth, verity, and vanity. The word vanity is filled, Ecclesiastes is filled with that word, vanity. I, I don't know what you thought. Peggy and I were talking about this week. You know, vanity here in Ecclesiastes is, ladies, is not, ladies, I don't know why I keep saying that even, is not the piece of furniture in your bedroom. That's not it. And vanity here is not necessarily when I look in a mirror and say, mirror, mirror on the wall, who's the fairest of them all? Why, Milwaukee, you are. It's not, it, <coughs> it's not that. Vanity, this word vanity, is mentioned 36 times in the book of Ecclesiastes. 36 times. I have told you this before, that there is a Bible study technique that is important to understand, and that is when God uses, the, by inspiration of God, uses the word over and over and over and over again, he wants us to notice that, and that is the, certainly the theme, and it literally means, my illustration with the fan, right, we'll get back to that in a minute, it literally means wind or breath or vapor, and it's gone, vanity, that's the idea here in this passage, so vanity, really, my definition is something that is empty, valueless, or to quote the NIV, meaningless. And I'm just here to suggest to you this morning that our lives, human life, is often filled with things that are in vain, that are a chasing after the wind, that have no value for eternity. And I think God wants us to understand that. Now, <clears throat> basically... There's a parenthesis that I want to talk with you about that for a minute because Pastor Todd and I have been talking with you about, um, uh, about the, the covenant and about we've, we've gone through, I talked with you a few weeks ago about the, the Ten Commandments and the law and, and, and the principles, the, the standards of the Word of God. And we talked about the Ten Commandments in, in Ecclesia, or Exodus chapter 20, verse 7. I wanted to go back to that, kind of a parenthesis, because... Here, God uses the word vain, too. Here in, this is one of the Ten Commandments. It says this, Exodus 20, verse 7. You shall not take the name of the Lord in vain. And I thought about that this week, getting ready for this. For the Lord will not hold guiltless who takes his name in vain. And I thought about that. Why is that important? Maybe just jot this down on the notes or whatever, because I know you know this. But in Acts chapter 4, in fact, I would just encourage you sometime. I'm going to do that this morning a little bit. And in your notes, there's a few boxes by the magic of Microsoft Word that you can do Bible studies on some words that are mentioned there and so on. But here's another one. Sometime in your study, highlight and notice 
the phrase, the name of the Lord, the name, God's name. And why is that important? One of those is in in Acts chapter 4. You might want to jot this down, Acts chapter 4, verses 10 through 12. But let me read verse 12. Acts 4, 12 says this. Listen. Nor or neither is there salvation in any other. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That's how important the name of God is. And to treat the name of God as flippant, as valueless, or meaningless is, is really is a terrible thing. That's my parentheses. Let's get back to the subject of vanity in Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes verse one or chapter 1, verse 2. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Or I said this before. That is utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. How do we get there? <clears throat> Again, you, don't, you can turn there in your Bibles with me, or you can just write this down. I know many of you in your own Bible study know this story. Solomon was King David's son. He was his heir. We're going to talk more about that in just a minute. And if you will, he was the heir apparent to King David's throne. Solomon, if you look back, I have here on the PowerPoint, uh, 1 Kings chapter 11. But if you were to look back at 1 Kings 3, that's the passage where God basically said to King Solomon, I will grant you a request. And King Solomon said, give me understanding or give me wisdom. And God said, this is Mel's paraphrase of the story. God said, because you asked for that, I will give that to you. So God granted him that. And so early in his life, King Solomon was this man of incredible wisdom. And Proverbs, and in, in the, the book of Proverbs, and, and King Solomon had that reputation of being able to decide things with wisdom and with God's wisdom. And again, sometimes read Proverbs. One of the things we've encouraged you to do before is read a proverb a day for your devotions. Like that corresponds with that day and read that. And one of the things you'll notice is over and over and over and over again in Proverbs is the use of the word wisdom. That was really important. But then something happened to King Solomon. And he moved his heart away from God and away from God's wisdom. And that story is found for us in 1 Kings chapter 11. In 1 Kings chapter 11, it tells a story. You can just read down through there. Even the first 13 verses tells us about that. And it tells us about how actually there, he, 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 he took wives. That, that passage tells us. 700 foreign women and concubines, and that became the passion of his life. And so 1 Kings chapter 11 tells us this, in verse 4 it says this, that his heart was not loyal to the, to the, to the Lord as God. That he made the choice to accept what the world had, and looked at what the world had, literally, and grabbed that, accepted that into his life. And that became the tipping point, if you will. That became the catalyst for turning his heart away from God. Verse 6 of that same passage says this, (laughs) that it not only just changed his heart, but it changed his lifestyle. That's a key point. It didn't just change his heart, but his lifestyle was affected 
obviously by the sin, the cyclical nature of that that's there. And Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord and did not follow, his, follow, follow the Lord. And then the story, the narrative there in 1 Kings tells us about how the whole nation of Israel then struggled and, and went through a period of time where God judged them and looked down on them because of King Solomon's decision. Ecclesiastes was written in that stage of his life where Solomon made a conscious choice to walk away from God and to look at what the world had, literally. Look at the, what the world had instead of what God had to offer. So I think the message, and maybe I could say this, close in prayer and, and walk away, except I'm not going to. I'm going to tell you a little bit more. But that um, here's the point, I think, is don't let that happen. You know, don't let that happen to us, where the perspective of this is what the world has, this is what I want, becomes more important than what God would have us to do in living a life that's from God's perspective. So we'll talk about that. Let me just, I'm going to do this really quickly because I want to get to the end and talk with, okay, about the so what part of this passage. In, um, in Ecclesiastes, we're going to do like a flyover of Ecclesiastes, and we're going to look at man's achievements in the book of Ecclesiastes. And there's, there's a lot of them, but I'm going to highlight seven things that Solomon at this stage of his life said are vanity that are worthless, that are meaningless from his lifestyle, from his perspective. These are all seven things that he tried. <clears throat> and he came to the conclusion, that's not it. That's not what matters. And we'll talk about that as we go through. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show you like seven little pictures and talk about that from the perspective of Solomon in Ecclesiastes. The first one is achievement. One of the things that Solomon did was said, I'm going to try by my abilities to achieve all that I can do. And if you look at verse 14, and I've highlighted that before, it says this, chapter 1, verse 14, I have seen all the works that are done under the sun, and indeed all is vanity or grasping for the wind. All is meaningless. If you follow that train about man's achievement, drop down to verse 4. Let me start reading at verse 4. Solomon is writing. And he writes this about human achievement. I made my works great, he wrote. I built myself, I built myself houses and planted myself vineyards. I made myself gardens and orchards and I planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. Notice, I, I, I. I made myself water pools from which to gather from which to water the growing trees of the grove. I acquired, I acquired male and female servants and had servants born in my house. Yes, and I had greater possessions of herds and flocks than all who were in Jerusalem before me. I did this. I did this. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the special treasures of the kings and the provinces. And I, and I acquired male and female singers and the delights of the son of men and musical instruments of all kind. Verse 9. So I became great and excelled more than all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. That remains to be seen. 
whatever my eyes desired. I, whatever my eyes desired, he writes, I did not keep from them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure, for my heart rejoiced in all my labor. And this was my reward from all of my labor. Then I looked on all the works that my hands had done and all the labor which I had toiled. And indeed, all was vanity and a grasping for the wind, and there was no profit under the sun. Wow. Um, this week or last week, um, basically because there's no sports on TV, what's a guy like me going to do? There's no NBA playoffs, there's no baseball. You know, what's a guy like me going to do? So there was a thing that was invented a few years ago. I, I think it's called Netflix, where you can watch. So, so Peggy gets these Netflix things that are on, and I think it was Netflix or Amazon or one of those streaming things. But we watched like either this week or last week, and when we started watching it, I had no idea that I was going to talk about this today. And we watched the series. You should watch it. The Men Who Built America. You ought to see it. It's the story of, um, oh, oh, help, help me out, uh, Vanderbilt, Van, Vanderbilt uh, Rock, John D. Rockefeller, uh, Henry Ford. It tells all of those great titans of America. And, and it was interesting for us because <clears throat> one of the first Carnegie, one of the first ones that they talked about in that series, The Men Who Built America, was uh, Cornelius Vanderbilt. Um, Vanderbilt University, uh, Gloria Vanderbilt, our descendant, descendants. There's a reporter on CNN, Vanderbilt. And, but <coughs> Cornelius Vanderbilt, he gave himself a nickname. Study, look it up. And his nickname was Commodore. So now the Vanderbilt University, their nickname for their sports team is Commodores. He called himself that. And he wanted to have people call himself that. And by the time that he was in his prowess, in his heyday, Cornelius Vanderbilt was uh, the wealthiest man in the United States. His net worth would be billions, plural billions of dollars today. Um, and he invested in railroads. That was a new uh, industry. He invented, uh, he invested in shipping. He's the guy that invented the idea of uh, the Staten Island Ferry in New York City because he was from Staten Island and so on. Cornelius Commodore Vanderbilt, the wealthiest man in the United States. And if you study his life, years ago, Peggy and I went to a little vacation trip and we went up by Poughkeepsie, New York, and we went to Hyde Park, New York, which is right up the Hudson River from New York City. And one of the things that's in Hyde Park is the FDR uh, mansion that's there, but also a mansion. I mean, this house is unbelievable that one of the Vanderbilts built. I mean, this house is unbelievable. And they told us in the tour, and we paid the five bucks or whatever it was to go through, and uh, which ended up being part of the story. The fact that Mel and Peggy had to pay the five bucks or seven bucks or 45 bucks or whatever it was to go through. And because the state owns it, and I'll talk to you about that in just a minute. And come to find out, they built this mansion up there on the Hudson River, and they never used it. They never lived there. It wasn't good enough for them. Commodore 
Vanderbilt built a, bought a mansion, I looked it up, on 57th Street in Manhattan. And it wasn't big enough, built nice enough, so he tore it down. And he ended up buying the whole block. This is about the turn of the century. And ended up building a mansion in New York City that covered the whole block, 57th Street and uh, 5th, Ave, 5th, 5th and 57th in New York City. And ended up being the nicest house in New York City. It covered a whole city block. And his servants lived there, and they lived in places that were different because they couldn't come in contact with the Vanderbilts and, and all of that. And you know something? Within just a few years after he died, they tore it down, his house in New York City. It's not there because somebody wanted that block for skyscrapers. The house that we went to in uh, Hyde Park or up there by Poughkeepsie, New York, and it wasn't. It was this huge mansion, and they charged us money to go for it. By the time that Cornelius Commodore Vanderbilt's uh, descendants got control of it, they had squandered away his entire fortune, and couldn't even afford these homes. And so the state had to take it over. And the only way that they can make money, the wealthiest man in the United States. The only way they can make money for this mansion, which is still there, you can go through. It's unbelievable, is to charge people like Mel and Peggy Walker the five bucks or the 45 bucks to go through it. Commodore Vanderbilt, wealthiest man, got, could say all that Solomon said. And Solomon had all of that. I mean, his splendor, Matthew talked about that Pastor Todd read had all that splendor that he did. Again, notice the personal pronouns. I did this, I did this, I did this. And it's all vanity. Number two, in Solomon's search, and I'm not going to take the time for all of these things, was greatness. Look at chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. He pursued greatness. I communed with my heart. He talked to himself, saying, Lord, he said, look, I have attained greatness. And have gained more wisdom than all who were before me in Jerusalem. My heart, had, my heart has understood great wisdom and knowledge. And I set my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. And I perceived also that this is a grasping after the wind. Trying to be great like, boy, I'm something. Until a little girl hits you in the gut and says, hey, did you ever play basketball? Three, skill. Look at verse chapter 4. Solomon certainly, and so was David, his father, a very skillful guy. Look at verse 4 of chapter 4. <clears throat> Again, I saw that for all toil and every skillful work, a man is envied by his neighbor. And this also is vanity and grasping for the wind. And I'll, I'll stop there. You can read down through a few more verses. Even to have that incredible skill, someone's going to come along that's better than you. Even to have that, have that skill that your neighbors are envious of this guy's skill. I mean, the people are, are envious of what Solomon did, and he hired people with skills, and, and yet someone's going to come down and, and tear it down like a mansion in New York City. Four, popularity. Look at chapter 4, verses 13 through 16. This is interesting as well. Chapter 4. Remember I told you we're taking a kind of a flyover of Ecclesiastes. 
starting at verse um, 13, better a poor <coughs> and wise youth than an old and foolish king who will be admonished no more. For he comes out of prison to be king, although he was poor, born in his kingdom. I saw all the living to walk under the sun, and they were with the second youth who stands in his place. There was no end to all the people over whom he made king, yet all yet those who came afterward will not rejoice in him. Surely this is vanity and a, scra- and a, and a, and a, and a grasping for the wind. In other words, he said, I was something. And then the next guy came along. Again, what does a guy like me do when there's no sports on TV? Did you watch the Michael Jordan thing? The, uh, the, 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 uh, the, the documentary about Michael Jordan's life and the, uh, what, what's the title of that? The Last Dance. The Last Dance. And, you know, the GOAT, right? The greatest, the greatest of all time. And then someone, there will, someone will come along it's, that's better than him or whatever. Solomon wrote about that. Here's another one. Wealth. Certainly that goes back to the men who build America illustration. Look at chapter 5, verse 10. Chapter 5, verse 10 says this. He who loves silver will not be satisfied with silver, nor he who loves abundance with increase. This also is vanity, and you could read down through the next few verses about that as well. There are people in this world that I just want to make as much money as I can. Solomon, like Vanderbilt, was probably the richest man of his time, and he writes that, yeah, silver isn't going to satisfy. He writes about that. One of the men on that documentary this week or that we watched was uh, John D. Rockefeller, who when he came to power, Steel, right? And, and also railroads and all that. The he became. And, it, and it's really interesting, the competition that these titans had with each other, and one had to beat the other guy, and one had to have more money than this guy. And Rockefeller certainly caught up with that. One time the story goes that somebody asked him, you know, J.D. Rockefeller, John D. Rockefeller, how much money is enough? Because he kept talking about how much, I need more and more money. And he said, just, he smiled, he said, just a little bit more. That money doesn't satisfy. And Solomon wrote about that. Certainly the wealth that he had accomplished. And work was one of those things. How many people today that their whole identity, their whole uh, view of life, their whole, their whole success is in what they do. Work is one of those. Look at chapter 6. All the labor, verse 7. Chapter 6, verse 7. All the labor... Of a man is for his mouth to provide for his needs and for his desires, yet the soul is not satisfied. And what more has the wise man than the fool? What does the poor have who knows how to walk before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of desire. This also is vanity and a grasping for the, for the wind. Um, it's so easy today to get caught up that our identity, our success, maybe especially for men, is what do you do? And we talk about our career. We talk about our accomplishments. And I think Solomon would say that he learned that what I do is vanity. And then there's one more, even learning. And I put this one in. There's, there's others. You can read through the text. But I'll go all the way to the last chapter. And that's where we're going to end. Because we are going to turn this around and talk about what's the end of the story, about, as Solomon wrote. In, verse, in chapter 12, verse 12. For a guy that talked with you about books this morning, chapter 12, verse 12, it says this, of making many books, there is no end. 
And I think the next phrase, every student who ever went to school says the next phrase, ever. And much study is a, weary, is a weariness to the flesh, is winsome, wearisome to the flesh. Yeah, I said that all the way through college, grad school, yeah. Yeah, and I'm talking to study, right? Solomon, I think, would say, I learned all of this, wisdom and understanding, and that was futile. All of those things, if they're done for me, if they're done for man, if they're done for human achievement, are vanity. And that's the world's perspective. But that's not the end of the story. Folks, the next two verses, the last two verses, kind of sum, kind of change the whole perspective of Ecclesiastes. And so let's end there. In Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 13 and 14, it says this. Let us <coughs> hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Yeah, amen. Let's hear the conclusion of the whole matter. And then he says this. Fear God and keep his commandments. And then New King James says this, and we'll talk about that in just a minute. For this is man's all. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing. Important, important. Whether it be good or evil. So let's talk about that. There are two points that Solomon says are the conclusion of all of this. And here's what he says. Fear God and keep his commandments. I talked to you earlier about the book of Proverbs. And even in the notes, there's a little box, Magic of Microsoft, that's there. It talks about the fear of God. We tend to look at that word fear like, oh, no, I'm afraid. I'm, you know, it's, and I think there's some of that. But this week, I kind of crafted my own definition. And I put it there in your notes and here on the slide. That fear, living in the fear of God is, is really this. It's living in awe-struck reverence and full devotion to God. And full devotion with a recognition of His attributes. I think if you're studying, and folks, do this on your own. Do your own study sometime. I think if you'd study, what, is it, what does the Bible mean by the fear of God? I think we have to take a look at Why? And that brings us to a study, we talked about that a little bit a week ago, Wednesday night, about studying the attributes of God. One of my favorite books of all time is a guy by the name Old, and it's, it's, it's been reprinted a, a million times. A.W. Tozer wrote a book called The Knowledge of the Holy. If you read on Kindle at all, Right now, that book, you can buy the book for a buck ninety-nine. That's not a bad deal. And it's a, it's a book on the attributes of God. I read it and I was, we were in college because our president back then, Dr. Ernest Pickering, did a series of messages on the attributes of God. And it was powerful. Sometimes we have to study those together as a church. I, I made a list of a few of them. Why is it important that we fear God? I think, we, I think why, why that phrase fear and living in awe and reverence certainly are a part of that. But I think we have to come to take a look at his attributes. And then we'll see holiness of God. That God is completely different from anybody, anything other than God. God holy and he's good and he's great and he's perfect. The holiness of God. The, hell, the self-existence of God. Boy, praise God, I, I don't have that. God does. He's always been. He always will be. And there's nothing. He doesn't need anything else. God, the omniscience. He 
knows everything. The omnipotence. He has all power. I don't. I'll smile real big and say, you don't either. The omnipresence that he's everywhere. And lo, I will be with you always. Praise God, right? God's always there. We don't have to go through this on our own. Love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Sovereignty. That God is in complete control. That by him, the Bible says, all things consist. All things are held together. I am certainly thankful that God is in charge and that God is in control. And I'll smile real big and tell you a secret. I don't want that job. God, sovereign, his grace, praise God, gives us what we don't deserve, mercy. He doesn't do what we do deserve, his mercy. We deserve hell. We deserve those end results of all of that. And his justice. And I thought about that a lot this week. God, you know, I don't care what illustrations you can come up with. God is always just and is always fair and is always right and will be for all of eternity. I think if we study those and come to the conclusion that God is God and we're not, that we'll live a life that's fear God. Read Proverbs and notice that phrase, that fear of God. I gave you some of the verses, the beginning of knowledge and the beginning of understanding. And then he says, too, that this is a conclusion of the matter, to fear God and keep his commandments. So I gave you a Mel definition of keeping his commandments is this, keep. Making a conscious, intentional priority to do all that God wants us to do. Making that a conscious, intentional priority. That that's what I'm going to do with my life. God didn't give us suggestions, didn't give us ideas, gave us the principles of his word. And God expects us to live by the principles of his word. And we've talked to you about that, that covenant of those things before. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm going to wind down. But I was thinking about that. One of my uh, favorite passages in the whole Bible is found embedded in Ecclesiastes. I love this. And we, we can't quit without giving me an opportunity to talk to you about this one, because this one fits Solomon. Look at Ecclesiastes chapter 10, verse 1 with me. This, honestly, this verse, it, this verse cracks me up, but you get it. Listen to this. Ecclesiastes 10, 1 says this. Dead flies, good start, right? Putrefy the perfumer's ointment. And cause it to give off of a foul odor. Some of us grew up with King James Version. The King James here, Ecclesiastes 10.1, uses the word, you've seen the word apothecary, right? An apothecary was a maker of perfume, but it was basically a chemist. It was someone who needed to be trained in that skill. Now in Europe, there's apothecaries all over that are just basically a drugstore. But here it was a trained scientist, someone who was trained to be exact, right? If you've ever known a pharmacist, and I'm sure they're human, but if you've ever known a pharmacist, right, those dudes got to be exact, right? I mean, they got to have it down, right? They've got to be the exact, 
They've got to know how to count. You know, they gotta, they, it's got to be exact, right? That's, their whole life is preciseness. An apothecary was that. Remember the accounts in the New Testament when Mary put the perfume on Jesus' feet and how much did that cost? A year's salary? And perfume was an incredibly expensive deal. An apothecary, a perfumer's ointment. I mean, this was expensive stuff. But this guy had a problem. Dead flies putrefy the perfumer's ointment and cause it to give off a foul odor. Instead of being beautiful, and that's an amazing smell and all that kind of stuff, the whole mess stunk. How'd the dead fly get in there? Right? My weird imagination. Probably in the lab, the guy left the lid off of the perfume and a fly buzzing around, right? Do flies smell? Probably. Attracted to the scent of the perfume, flew in, got stuck, died, and caused the whole mess to stink. The problem, I've actually preached that at a retreat for kids, the problem with dead flies. Because the next phrase tells us exactly what Solomon means by that. So does a little folly to one who is respected for wisdom and honor. I'm sure Solomon's story started off, you can read it, 1 Kings, read, read through. It started off with something very little, the problem of dead flies. And it ended up being the thing that took him out and it caused disaster even for the whole nation of Israel. And so when God says, by inspiration of God, here's the conclusion of the whole matter. Here's it. Fear God. Live in awe and respect of the attributes of God. And keep his commandments. Do what God told us to do. Live our lives based upon the principles of the word of God. That's what God wants us to do. Because here's how it ends. For this is man's all. This is the whole duty of all humans. That's really what it's saying. This is what God left us here to do. To fear him and keep his commandments. Life um, matters. And living a life for eternity matters. We can look at Ecclesiastes and see all kinds of illustrations of people, and maybe even ourselves who are there. And, and yeah, you can look at TV or look at culture and find all kinds of illustrations that are there as well. And God says all of that human achievement, work, money, Greatness is vanity. It's a chasing after the wind. Haddon, come up here, bud. Bring your jar. Bring your jar. Didn't we do this before? This is my grandson, Haddon. Isn't he cute? Didn't we do this before? Haddon, you have that jar? You kept the lid on the whole time, right? Could you open it up? Take it. What's in there? Nothing. Nothing. There's nothing in there. And actually, I set him up and told him what to say. True, true disclosure. Thanks, Adam. Thank you very much. But the, the chasing after the wind, you can do that. And the end result is nothing. That's what Solomon is saying. This is a conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God. Keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of man. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. Thank you for your perspective of life. If we were to look... At Ecclesiastes, and we were to look at the first 
two-thirds of the message today. It'd be discouraging. Yeah, it, the world is a mess, and probably so am I. But Father, help us to have your perspective. God, forgive us if we've lived our lives for ourselves and that we've lived our lives with all of those personal human pronouns too. I, 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 I. God, forgive us for that. God, help us to live lives that matter and that live lives that matter for eternity. The one who does the will of God lives forever. Father, teach us the whole duty of all humans. Fear God. Fear God. Understanding, learning about your attributes. And keeping your commandments. Doing what you would have us to do. Father, you are not confused. You have not confused us. We've talked about that the last couple of weeks. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the illustration of Solomon, but help us to learn from it. And God, I pray that you work in our lives and help us to live lives that are pleasing, that are honoring to you, and that matter for eternity. Father, I thank you for your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I hope this is an encouragement to you. Thanks for joining us. And for those that are here, it's great to have you here today. And the Lord, the Lord bless you. Thank you very much.